Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. It's actually Christagenia Saturdays, but that's okay, it's all the same. Today is Saturday, February 20th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. The hour is late, and all of the formerly Christian nations are overcome with the enemies of Christ. It is far too late to split hairs over the place of beasts in the kingdom of God, when it should be obvious to all that after 500 years of trying to civilize and make Christians of them, they are still nothing but beasts. How is it? How is Christian identity relevant in today's society? How is Christian identity relevant in the circumstances that our race finds itself in today? How can we help steer Christian identity down a path which is useful to our nation and our race in these last days? These are the core issues and objectives that we are once again going to discuss this evening with our friend and guest, Pastor Mark Downey. Hello, Mark. Hi, Bill. Thanks, and um, good to be here again. And amen to your opening statements. If I may uh, open with a a prayer again. Our Father in Heaven, uh, we're thankful for this time together this evening to share the good news of Christian identity and may our dialogue tonight um, be for the blessings of the listeners and um, those who have ears to hear the program later on. Grant us an understanding of thy will and purpose for our race to discern the proper destiny, not only ourselves, but those who hate us and want to destroy us. Help Jacob Israel in this time of worldwide troubles to awaken to the importance of repentance and being obedient unto the word of truth. May we grow in grace to be that remnant, your righteous instrument that plants the seed and sets the example in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last time, Bill, we uh, um, made a pretty good presentation, but we had some leftovers that we wanted to uh, address tonight. Well, well, quite uh, a few. I don't think we got through half your notes. (laughs) Well, um... Nevertheless, we're going to attempt to um, uh, finish uh, what's really a two-pronged subject that we started a couple of weeks ago, the first being that non-Israelites were not created by God, and secondly, that um, they will be, as per Scripture, eventually exterminated, for lack of a better term. And this isn't you or me saying this. 
We're not being mean-spirited. We're simply having eyes to see and, and being able to read the clear words of God that, that say it repeatedly. In the past, and, and, and this is the state of Christian identity, because various identity Christians who have been with this message for a long time, much longer than me, or, or, or even Clifton, are, are stuck at, at various stages of this progression that I've seen unfold from the writings of the earliest identity Christians unto the present day. And first they had this scheme where there was a sixth and eighth day creation and, and one collection of people called Adam were the other races and they were created on a sixth day and the nations of, of um, the white race were created from the Adam who, who was created on the eighth day and, and we've picked that argument apart and, and we've just destroyed it and it doesn't hold up to scrutiny and of the language of the scripture of anything so then you have your next group of people who came along that want to squeeze the other races into the Bible and they take the creation of the non-white races back to the beast of Genesis chapter 1 verse 25 and that doesn't hold up to scrutiny either either scrutiny of the Hebrew language or scrutiny of the scripture especially since that group wants to take these people they call beasts in Genesis and make men out of them when you get to the New Testament. And that just doesn't wash because the law of God is kind after kind. So there's a problem. Where did the other races come from? Well, in the book of Genesis, we have two trees. We have the tree of life, and we could show from the New Testament that the tree of life is Jesus Christ and his race. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's all we know, is that we have this bad tree that we aren't ever supposed to touch that has the knowledge of good and evil. But when you get through the Bible... The children of Israel are constantly commanded to be separate. It's basically the same command given to Adam and Eve, not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to remain a separate and unique people at all times. And when you get through the Bible to the Revelation, you only have one tree left. And Christ tells us that there are wheat and tares, sheep and goats, good figs, bad figs, um, good fish, bad fish. There's never any third party, fourth party, fifth party. There's two parties. In the beginning, we had two trees. In the end, there's one tree. And that's only the good tree. Well, I concur that... Um uh, if you want to find a starting point for Christian identity, I, I guess it would be around the 1950s. Uh, I've only been in it since 1976, but being in it that long, you do see an ebb and flow of 
uh, how people regard race itself. And um, uh, I went. We were doing fine until about the 1980s, and we were growing exponentially. And with it, a lot of people were dragging in their denominational baggage. And um, and the uh, racial consciousness somewhat um, drifted, you might say. And um, I think that's what our what we're trying to reestablish with these programs is that we all have to agree that the Bible is a, a racial book, and Genesis 5:1 establishes the fact that it says this is the book of the generations of Adam, nobody else. And we've been dealing with with all of these uh, distractions for almost 20 years that uh, in, in some cases is outright universalism. Uh, there are some apologists that deny or are embarrassed that uh, Christian identity is is racist or that we should be called racist. Uh, that Christian identity be called racism. But all you have to do is, is look at um, our creator and what he says, not what we say, but how he regards his own creation. And there I think we'll find, we'll get back to our roots of Christian identity and reestablish that racial consciousness that is, is much needed today, either by people that come into our movement and purposefully are trying to uh, distract us from our primary purpose, or they're just ignorant of, of what the, the racial message is. But anyway, you look at it, we can't compromise. Well, well absolutely, there's no compromise in... in um the scripture does not compromise. That is why Christ said that he would rather have us hot or cold. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou were hot or cold, or cold or hot. That means I wish that you were either cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And to me, I understand that as um, the, the, the hot being keen on the scripture and keeping the word of God, even if you fail, that you're hot, you're eager to do that, and that's good. And the cold being a total apathetic atheist, and you're cold. But these lukewarm people that want to take the word of God and claim it as their own and compromise it, they're lukewarm. And compromising or being lukewarm is what God will just puke out, spit out of his mouth because it's so abhorrent to him. Um, You're better off being a total apostate. A good and evil... We understand that the racial alien cannot be good because it's not uh, created by God. It is some kind of corruption of creation. And as such, 
can only be an evil life form. So, using the word universalism to describe this inclusion of the racial alien into the Bible is really adding to Scripture. Absolutely. It's interpolating Scripture. You may as well try to snip those little branches off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and graft them into the tree of life. And God's going to whack you for that. And it's gotten so bad um, today that it's epidemic. So, not everybody, but um, some people that come into Christian identity still have this baggage of uh, universalism that they they learned uh, from cradle, but hopefully not to their grave, and uh, will awaken racially uh, to these uh, two-pronged truths that we're presenting tonight. And we shouldn't um, we shouldn't fear our critics or adversaries, if you will, uh, when they call us names, like oh, being politically incorrect or um, uh, anti-racist or being called racist. Or there's this, this new um, phrase I wasn't familiar with until just recently called SJW. <laughs> I guess it stands for Social Justice Warrior. Right. And, and, and I'm well, sorry, go on. A warrior is one who's engaged in warfare. And, and there's, there's no room to include, um, I think social justice is just a, a euphemism, another euphemism for universalism. It's a euphemism for Marxist and, and Jewish egalitarianism. And, and basically, identity Christians that ask the question, what about the other races? Or that have these crazy ideas in their head that God is somehow going to give them a part of what he had already promised to Abraham. Those people are basically social justice warriors within operating within Christian identity. They've accepted Jewish egalitarianism and they projected that onto God and imagined him to be a Jewish egalitarian. Well, it's, it's uh, politically incorrect to say that communism is Jewish, but that is the roots of... Uh, of uh, Marxist-Leninist communism. It, it was uh, Jewish from the get-go. And, uh, and they're behind a lot of the um, egalitarian thought that goes into not only government, but churches, and has been a, a cancer upon our race for the last 50 years. It's steadily been on a slippery slope to a new world order, if you could call it that, as um, George Bush calls it. 
Well, well to me, a lot of these people that cling to the idea that the other races have a place in the kingdom of God are either misled and, and still have a lot of Judeo-churchianity baggage that they have accepted and believe. And, and that, that, that describes a good portion of those people. But the other portion are devious. And, and I believe they purposely seek to destroy Christian identity. Well, in recent years, when um, uh, the Jews put the big push on a new type of legislation, which is, I guess we would call it, almost an Orwellian thought crime is called hate speech and hate crimes and it's because they they hate the truth about themselves <laughs> basically and uh, I think hate has gotten a bad rap I mean it's it's uh, expressed quite often uh, in the Bible I think they they've tried to reinvent it as something else but we know that uh, David hated with a perfect hatred his enemies. And um, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for love and there's a time for hate. In fact, I would say if our God hates, then I'll, I'll hate what he hates. Right. And Proverbs 6.16 lists seven things that God hates. And there's several other scriptures that advocate hate. In fact, um, in Proverbs 8.13, it says, Fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And we, um, we said early on that the racial alien, being that when God said his creation was good, but he, if he didn't create the racial alien, then it can't be good. It can only be evil. So fear of the Lord is to hate the racial alien. And all hate means is that we're opposed to them. The law, God's law says in Exodus 23:33, they shall not dwell in thy land. And then it goes on to say why. But... But the problem today is that they dwell on our land. And so people without a fully developed or fully informed racial consciousness start making excuses for the racial alien in our land. How do we be a separate people? How do we well, be that's a peculiar people? Who was Peter writing to when he, he said that you are a holy nation and a, a separate people and, and a holy race. Who was he writing to? I think I had the wrong chapter, so I'm paraphrasing. But thou art a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That word chosen generation, that's the word genos. It means race. 
There wasn't one generation of Christians and then Christians disappeared. These people were the lost sheep of the house of Israel that the gospel was brought to, that Peter was writing to, the twelve tribes scattered abroad. They were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. They can't remain holy, which means separate and dedicated to God, and they can't remain peculiar if they're mixed in with all the other races. And how many other um, racial aliens are there that have a Christian priesthood? <laughs> there aren't any. None. They, they may uh, wear costumes and uh, attempt to mimic um, the true royal priesthood, but uh, they're uh, simply uh, an imitation. They're not the holy nation, the holy race. Christians have a universal priesthood with the commission from Christ to love one another and care for one another. And that is how we serve God. That's all over John chapters 14 and 15. That's the whole purpose of chapters 14 and 15 in the Gospel of John. Well, in fact, you know, the Ten Commandments are all about the first four commandments are God's relationship with his people, and then the other six are about our relationship with each other. There's never any hint that it's dealing with any other racial alien. And fact, uh, there's it, one of I'm my sorry. often repeated and favorite verses in the Old Testament is Second Chronicles 19.2. Where it says, wrath, God's wrath will be upon us if we help or love those who hate the Lord. And I think we mentioned last time Psalms 147, where the law was only given to our race. The other races never knew it. They didn't know it. And therefore... Uh, they could not love God because love is the keeping of his commands. But this universalism and the compromises, there's altogether too many people of our race that love those who hate our God. <coughs> and, and that's the second kind of, um, of, of hatred. It is that we should hate those that hate our God. Not only those that hate us, but we should hate those that hate our God. And we should hate those that hate our God and his law. You had mentioned the aliens. In, in, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul talked about how men, through faith, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Is that no longer relevant? If that was no longer relevant, why would Paul have mentioned it? It's absolutely relevant. We should still, through faith, turn to flight the armies of the aliens. And that's in Hebrews 11.34. I think when we mature in Christ, we begin to see the world as it is, in which there really is spiritual warfare going on much more so against us than us against them. 
and uh, and this has to do with churchianity and the war that they foist upon us with it's a war of words with with biblical terms and and interpolations and misinterpretations false identities of who's who but uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that that's where the spiritual warfare is we don't necessarily wrestle against flesh and blood but against the forces of darkness and um, even the contrast between light and dark I think can be seen racially sometimes it's just knowledge but certainly Right now, today, we can see that in rulers of wickedness that are ruling over us. And it's a judgment. It's a divine judgment against our people for allowing them to dwell in our land. Because when they do, eventually they'll become the head and we'll become the tail. And um, that's not a very warm and fuzzy thing to think about uh, I guess unless you're completely brainwashed and, and sitting in the pews of some Judeo-Christian church in, in I'm sorry let me elaborate on that a moment in, in Ephesians in Ephesians 6.12 it says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood meaning the, the struggle that we have with our sin, ourselves, our brethren, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And of course the darkness is the world apart from Christ, the world that's alienated from God, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You, you know, when I was a youth about 50 years ago, maybe about 45 years ago the agenda started to push these words diversity multiculturalism and and things like that and the ideas behind them that started as I was about to go into high school and and um, it, it ramped up through the 80s and 90s and it comes down from above it comes down to us from these rulers of the darkness of this world these wicked spirits in high places that's where these ideas come from and it, if you're a true Christian true to Christ and true to your people you're going to understand that as Paul said the hope of Israel is for the 12 tribes not for the 12 tribes and the aliens Paul told the Hebrews that through faith they could turn to flight the armies of the aliens. The promises for the twelve tribes, and we should not accept this spiritual wickedness which is dictated down to us from these high places. And so hate, as much as of a buzzword as it is, is appropriate. Um, we're to oppose those things. Um, 
we may have to wrestle with them in our own mind to overcome our past indoctrination. Um, you mentioned last night, Bill, that uh, reconciliation of all things, which is itself exclusive to one race. However, it's been twisted, and I hate, I'm opposed, I wrestle with those that have twisted it into something completely its opposite, which they call racial reconciliation. And that's become epidemic. It's some kind of fantasy that, that the white race has wronged the dark races, and we have to uh, reconcile our uh, past with the present, and um, and we're actually serving them more than our own God. Paul talked about Christ reconciling the world to himself, but at that time, as it is very clear in Luke chapter 2 and elsewhere in Scripture, where Caesar taxed the whole world, the world was only the Greco-Roman world of the white nations of Europe and, and, and the Mediterranean, the, the lands adjoining the Mediterranean. They were all white. They didn't really include other people of other races. Yeah, there were a few mixed races in Egypt, and there were the Canaanites and the Edomites, the tares among the wheat. But Abraham, by the time of Christ, the seed of Abraham had already inherited the old Adamic world. And all of the dominant tribes of the time of Christ and of Paul were descended from the children of Israel. The Romans, the Dorian Greeks, not the Ionians, the Macedonian Greeks, the, the, the Scythians, the Parthians. They were the, the Phoenicians of Carthage and Iberia and, and Britain. They were the dominant tribes of the world that was reconciled to Christ, which Paul spoke of. The only place where you see the concept of reconciliation and God mentioned together in the prophets is in Daniel chapter 9. That's the only place. The reconciliation of all things is all things between the children of Israel and Yahweh their God according to Daniel chapter 9, which was to take place in the person of Messiah the Prince, whom Daniel is prophesying in chapter 9. Christ talks about Elijah coming and restoring all things. And when we go read the only place in the prophets that Elijah is mentioned is in Malachi chapter 4. Now, Christ says that Elijah shall come and then he says that Elijah already came and they did with him whatever they desired or what they listed, which is a word that means desired or counseled to do or willed to do. So that's a, a, a and even the apostles, and it's in the gospel, 
they interpreted that Elijah that already came and they did with him what they desired as being John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the subject of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. It's very clear. But he's not the subject of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 is an end time prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled and it's about the great and terrible day of Yahweh the day of his vengeance and that Elijah that Christ said shall come using the future tense that Elijah is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers that is the only racial reconciliation in the Bible and the restoration of all things and the reconciliation of all things only has to do with all things between Yahweh their God and the children of Israel so that they could have the inheritance promised to them through the fathers. That's it. That's the reconciliation of all things. Has nothing at all to do with any other race. Well, it certainly is a different world that, that we live in today compared to ancient history where we and this is your expertise where uh, we could say that it was almost a given that our people had a a much better racial consciousness than we do today because people today reject racism and instead of turning the, the hearts of the fathers to their children in ancient times of embracing their own race. That would seem to be the, the difference. And, and the difference is today, nobody's held accountable. In fact, they're, they're rewarded in this life by a little pat on the head by their veil priest. But I believe they will be judged at the White Throne. Strabo had said... A, a gatherer or a scatterer. Right. And Christian identity gathers, universalists scatter. Absolutely, because when you try to gather figs from thorns, and, and, and what happens when you take thorns and put them in your basket, and then you get some figs and you throw it on top, all the skins of the figs are pierced, and and they go bad. They can't be preserved because their juice dries up, runs out. They dry up. They they get moldy. Their their skins are pierced. You know the Canaanites were to be thorns in our sides, so we can't gather figs from thorns. You know it's it's really the same thing with uh, casting your pearls before swine, because they usually don't read the second half of that verse that says because if you do they will turn and rend you in other words they'll attack you Absolutely. but really it's um, <clears throat> I, I've had so many debates 
with these kind of people, as I'm sure many in Christian identity have, and, and they always fall back on that word all. Well, can't you see it says all people? Well, or all things. But really, it's, it's understanding the context. It has everything to do with the context. It, it has everything to do with the whole historic context. What, when Paul says all people or all men, he means all the men to whom he is addressing. All the men who are the subject of his message. And time and time again in Paul's letters, he tells us that the subject of his message are the people who were of the lost sheep, the people who needed reconciliation, the people who had been alienated from God. If you're not one of those men who are alienated from God, then you can't be one of the all men being reconciled to God. Yahweh said, and in, in God said in Amos 3.2, You are the only family I have known of all the earth. Therefore I will punish you for your iniquity. And Paul, in all his epistles, or in many of his epistles, talks about that punishment and how we should return to obedience in Christ. So how could Paul be talking about any other nation other than the children of Israel if the Old Testament that the God of the Old Testament only recognized the children of Israel and would punish them. Paul's speaking of that punishment, and he's speaking of redemption, mercy, and reconciliation. So he's only speaking to those particular children of Israel. Yeah, and isn't it interesting how many churches today are uh, New Testament churches? They, they don't want to associate even with the Old Testament. Well, well, identity Christians should know better, and therefore identity Christians should also know better when it comes to the race issue and the importance of the exclusivity of Israel, that we are not here to serve the other races, that we are not here to... to help the other races into the kingdom. If that were the case, why isn't it in one scripture, why is it not explicit that we are to do that? And they love to point to the the fact that Jesus healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. Well, he also told her to go thy way after he did that. So who are we to question Christ? He didn't, he, everybody else he healed, he said, either go to the temple and report it to the priests, or, or he said, um, come follow me and forsake what you have. But he only told her to beat it, to go away. She got what she wanted, now leave. And there seemed to be some cognitive dissonance uh, about People just forgetting what verse 24 says, which is, which every identity Christian should know is that Christ said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And and that pretty much says it all. <laughs> well, 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 there's no doubt. And, and, and 
they look for that they look for excuses in scripture to take the bread of the table the bread of the children off of the table and to throw it on the floor and call it crumbs they'll take the children's bread throw it on the floor purposely and call it crumbs and and they're basically inviting the dogs right up onto the table and that would seem to be um, defiling hallowed ground you know we do have a sanctity we do have a holy place when Christians gather together to worship and it should be holy ground but it's defiled once the racial alien enters the picture well if I may um, resume my notes from last time I think uh, the last thing I mentioned was I closed on the happy note that uh, Christ made the prophecy against Jerusalem in 78 AD and over a million Jews were killed. Uh, however, the psychology today is that any sort of demographic apocalypse is, is just unimaginable. Well, well, let me just interject real quickly. It was 1.1 million, according to Flavius Josephus. The bad news is that Tacitus said it was only 500,000. But the Talmud said it was millions, and there were so many Jews killed that the blood running down to the sea had carried along boulders with it. I, I just thought I'd elaborate I, I've on. read that it's, it was over a million also, so I just rounded it off because that in itself is a, a sizable number, and, uh, and I can live with that. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm just giving the... Yeah, you know, what I'm trying to say is that the Romans cut the figure in half. Josephus, I believe, gave a figure that he thought was honest. But the Jews that later wrote the Talmud, if they could have thought up the six million figure, maybe they did. Maybe it was six million. But they actually <laughs> insisted that it was many, many more. They were exaggerating back then, too. Any way you slice it, half that figure is a good start. But you know, that's that's because of the universalist propaganda. It's It's been hard at work to condition our people mentally, uh, not only due to that six million figure, uh, the Holocaust itself has almost become uh, a religious plateau of of worship and a place of um, uh, homage but it's again just a tool for advancing their communist utopia what they don't tell you <clears throat> is the secret societies and secret police have an agenda to reduce the world's population by billions of souls. And yet they scream and holler about racists who really, and I'm speaking for myself, I just want to live free. 
I just want to be left alone by these idiots and be separate from their evil. And uh, I noticed in the chat room before the show started, there was some discussion about Trump. But you know, there's really no difference between uh, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. They're all egalitarians. None of them have a, a racial consciousness to discern what they should if they're going to call themselves a Christian. And they have legions of change agents everywhere in government, in the churches, in schools, who really think nothing of the truth. All that matters is the big lie. And one of the biggest lies is that God loves everybody. God knows what's going on, and he is a righteous and just God. And his word says he will exterminate the exterminators. He will destroy the destroyers. That's not me saying that. That's We covered a lot of that last time in part one. And the exterminators are collectively known <clears throat> as the wicked. They're the enemy of God. And make no mistake about it, they are the racial enemies of white people. And there's nothing good to report about their destiny. Their finality in the future. <clears throat> well, probably one of the most popular books that deal with exterminationism, or for lack of a better term, is Obadiah. And uh, it's not just Esau Edom or the Jews as evidence of a prophetic extermination that will not only target the Jews, <clears throat> but it says all the heathen as well. Well, let's read these verses with uh, uh, explanatory commentary as we go through it. Quote, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, and I'll stop there parenthetically, uh, because the day of the Lord is already known from Joel 1.15 and other verses in Joel as a terrible day of destruction and, and trembling and for Malachi the anti-Christian outrages against right. God's covenant people. Obadiah here is rendering Edom somewhat as the flagship and symbol of mongrelization, which necessitates a universal God or small g gods in defiance of the one true God. So the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it will be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Now let me stop there. This, this is not a good reward. People usually think of the word reward as being something uh, for doing something good. But 
More accurately, it's the evil deeds of the enemies of the white race. The religion of universal lust, disguised as a brotherhood of love, is swept away in one universal destruction. They want universalism, well, there's going to be a universal destruction. Right. And that goes hand in hand with other scriptures in Jeremiah chapter 30 and in Jeremiah chapter 45, I think. It, it might be 46. Yes, Jeremiah 46. God says that he will make a full end of all the nations, and nations are goyim. They're not governments. They're not geographic entities. Nations in the scripture are people groups. A full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee. Where are the children of Israel not scattered? If there's one Israelite in Japan, or in China, or in Kenya, that doesn't bode well for those nations when Yahweh decides to gather the tares, or put the goats into the fire, as he says in Matthew chapter 25. And you're either a sheep or a goat, and all the goats go into the fire. And if I may point out um, this this new term, people groups, uh, was coined by um, a guy named Ken Ham, who's right here in northern Kentucky. And his outfit is called Answers in Genesis. And most of their hierarchy are race mixers. And so they don't want to talk about race. So they reinvented race with the term people groups. (laughs) And they're also spending $70 million on a Noah's Ark theme park here, um, which we pray against on a regular basis. But I thought I'd just point that out, that people groups is... uh, I guess we could, we would be called people groupist <laughs> instead of racist. I don't know. Well, well, right. It, it's um, people groups is just a sort of euphemism for race. But my point is that these nations of the Old Testament, they're not geographic entities. They're not governments. They are groups of people with a common lineage. A nation is a group of people with a common birth. The word natus means birth, and that's why the Latin word natio means nation, because natus means birth. The the Romans knew that a nation should be a people of common birth and common origin and a common history. So our race... The, the children of Israel and, and the children of Adam were at one time all one together. I mean, that's the Genesis 11 event. And that's the story of the history of the children of Jacob, that they were all one nation together. And they were several um, related families within one nation, but they became many nations out of one related family. 
So the Greek idea of race was a line within a nation, but if that line grew to a certain point, it could span several nations and incorporate several nations, and that's what happened to the children of Israel. Right. Well, what I was getting at, um, since I learned this um, new aspect of race uh, from your teachings, Bill, um, I've had to discipline myself from from calling it the black race or the Chinese race or the other races per se. Right. Uh, because a race is uh, a species. It's um, a kind. Kind after kind is what God created. And the blacks are many different kinds, very disparate ones. There's at least uh, half a dozen breeds of Negro on the continent of Africa. Okay, uh, back to Obadiah and verse 16. Quote, For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, I'll stop right there, being that this prophecy is future and yet to be fulfilled, and if we are to understand that mountain in prophecy means a nation or kingdom, the context would suggest that it is Edom or modern Jewry and not Israel or the white race, as some commentators theorize, who it is that's getting drunk. This holy mountain could be the same as Mount Zion, which is the same as New Jerusalem. If the holy mountain is Zion, then it would point to the greatest Christian nation in the history of mankind. God said in Isaiah 28:16. I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, end quote, which is alluding to Christ. But has it not come to pass that the Jews have become intoxicated with power right here in America? And how much verse 16 sounds like Revelation 18.3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, which I guess we could say is universalism. It's just one big party with the white taxpayers, the, the tail that was formerly the head, picking up the bar tab, so to speak. So I lay in Zion for a foundation, or excuse me, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and guzzle down everything in it. Well, this is a perfect description of a kind of a literal and spiritual alcoholism. Religion as the opiate of the people. And as Revelation also says, uh, by thy sorceries were all the nations deceived. And in her, meaning Mystery Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. There's your heathen exterminationists who are high on the drug of universalism. And it ends by saying, and they shall become as if they had never existed. There 
here is proof that the wicked will be removed or exterminated just as surely as the tares are gathered out of God's kingdom and cast into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, or God's racial elect, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. A Zion may have been um, Great Britain, or the law shall go forth from Zion, Micah 4.2. But she had a daughter. And if you read the rest of the story in Micah, you'll see this daughter of Zion losing her way and being captured by Babylon. And that many nations would be gathered against her. But in verses 12 and 13, it says, those who were defiling Zion, which would be Esau, Edom, and his minions of alien adversaries, quote, know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither do they understand his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves of grain on the threshing floor. And are you ready for this? I love this part. Arise and thresh, which means crush the heathen, that you may pulverize many nations into pieces, that you will devote their unjust gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the earth, end quote. And, and that is um, that correlates with the fall of Mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, where the people of God reward unto her double. But the strongest proof, I believe, that the what well, well Joel equates Zion to Yahweh's holy mountain in Joel chapter two, where in a Hebrew parallelism we see, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Both phrases refer to the same thing. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is given a vision of four great world empires, and all Bible scholars that I know of identify those pretty much correctly as the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. And it's the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that would break in pieces all of those old empires, especially the Roman. And the Germanic tribes did that. The Germanic tribes that later became the, the um, preponderance of people, the dominant people in Europe and later in the colonies, the English colonies, and, and the German colonies, and the Dutch. Well, those are the people of God, indeed. There are thousands of ways to prove that in Scripture, and, well, maybe hundreds of ways. And they are the holy mountain of God, wherever they are. And at one time, Germany was the dominant nation of the people of God and and then economically France and then England and now America but that doesn't leave those old nations behind they're still comprised of the people of the same stock they're still a part of God's holy mountain because his holy mountain are a people and not 
a rocky hill in the barren deserts of the Middle East. Right. I think there are some translations that say they will be ground into powder. And um, they, of course, being the enemies of God and the white race. And the two go hand in hand. I don't see how an identity Christian, and we're only concerned here this evening with identity Christians, I don't see how an identity Christian could look at all the heathen in Obadiah 15, and that's the word for nations, all the nations, it's the word goy, and and feeding upon God's holy mountain. Well, those must be nations that are not the people of God's holy mountain, who are the children of Israel. They have to be different people groups other than the children of Israel. And they're drinking upon his holy mountain. And most identity Christians, I think all identity Christians that I've ever met, would readily admit when they heard that description that the non-white races have acted for hundreds of years now as parasites on the white race. Everything they get comes from us. The Chinese, all of their technology, all of their manufacturing ability, all of their that their economic um, benefit comes from America and various other predominantly white nations. That all of these other nations in the world, all the foreign aid we send to Africa, the food aid, the, the aid that we sent for, uh, for, for many years to, to the Soviet Union. We were sending aid to, to the communist Soviet Union for, for probably 10 or 12 years during the, during the time of, of National Socialism and the Second World War. We were sending aid. The, the Soviets had orchestrated um, massive famines in the Ukraine in the 1930s and we were sending them food aid. And we've established that. In fact, it was Herbert Hoover who was organizing the, 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 the distribution of that food aid. So the Jews in Russia were starving the, the white Ukrainians to death and, and they were getting all the food aid from, from America and not distributing it to those white Ukrainians. Now, all of these, all of history from the last 200 years shows that all of these aliens have been benefiting at the expense of the white race, the children of Israel, Christendom, God's holy mountain. And this has been going on for a long time. And that must be what Obadiah is describing in verses 15 and 16. Right. Now, I don't see how our people can be so blind either, Bill, other than um, the fact that... Uh, whoa, what's that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had some feedback. I had to remove one of my headpieces for a minute. I apologize. Go on. Well, our, um, our our people are are so blind, I think, because um, they believe a lie and and they don't have a love for the truth. You know, there never would have been the founding of the Israeli state 
1948 had it not been for American financing. I mean, that has got to be one of the most glorified welfare states in the history of mankind. We, if we were to ever withdraw foreign aid, they would dry up and shrivel up and, and blow away with the wind. And yet there's Judeo-Christian preachers that say it was an act of God, that the Jews are Israel. Well, God didn't have anything to do with it. It was true Israelites who were so blind that they financed their enemies' own founding. It's really crazy. Even well, though, you know, not all Judeo-Christians are swept away with, with the rapture hoax, which is predicated on the Jew, they, they still suffer from the expectation that the day of the Lord will be some kind of Disneyland and everything will just be wonderful. They all well, float up to heaven. Yes, you know, the proverbial harp on a cloud. And they'll have their own mansion, and the streets will be paved with gold. It'll just be so wonderful. But they're wrong. <laughs> it will be terrible. And let me quote why. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5. Well, what else is great? Well, the harvest. The harvest is spoken of as the great harvest. It's not that God is going to literally return Elijah physically, but rather what he did in his day. We have, well, what did Elijah do in his day? Well, he exterminated 400 Baal priests by inspiring the people to permanently baptize them in the brook Kishon. It's going to be a terrible day for the modern Baal priest. Now, Elijah demonstrated the power of God with the contest of bonfires. And we will likewise kindle the fires, as Luke 12, 49 alludes to, that, will, that Christ will turn ablaze. And as we prepare for that great day of harvest, our faith will be so sound that we will have overcome the world. And here's the prophecy that hasn't yet come to pass, but will precede the second coming, that says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. 1 John fourteen twelve. Now because the harvest is so great and so few laborers, God bequeathed upon his servants a power not seen since the days of Elijah. Well, how could anybody not be persuaded by supernatural healings, unprecedented miracles, and also impervious to ravenous wolves? Well, we certainly experience few laborers in Christian identity. But um, 
I was, I was just thinking today, and I related this to you earlier, that we do have many self-proclaimed evangelists. And one wrote a book, and it's a hardbound book, which are few and far between in Christian identity. So, boy, I guess if you got a hardbound book, that's really something. I'm speaking of Ted Wyland in his book, God's Covenant People, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. And on page 380, this is what old Ted says. The heading is called Racism. Quote, The message of Israel's true identity cannot be labeled racism. Unless, of course, the same people doing so are willing to call God Almighty a racist as well. There's that bugaboo buzzword, racist. Well, well God Almighty is a racist. He's, Absolutely. Well, whether you want to believe that he created the other he created the other races or not and of course we don't believe that but even if you believe that the fact that race exists proves that god is a racist he's the author of race kind after kind let me continue there's a few other choice uh, pa- uh excerpts here i'd like to read and and we can uh, uh, certainly make a, a comment about them. Quote, Identifying the Kelto-Saxon people as Israel cannot be correctly labeled white supremacy because this teaching does not elevate one race above another, but mandates that one race, the white race, to be a servant unto the others. Let me stop right there. Evidently, Ted never read Deuteronomy 7-6. Well, well, right, that God would set the children of Israel above all the other nations of the earth, all the other people. I will set you above all other peoples. And that included other white people, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians. That included them as well as the non-white races, the Canaanites, and the other people in that area. The other so-called races weren't even a consideration. No. He goes on. It is not white supremacy. If anything, it is white servanthood. And then he quotes William J. Cameron who says the true effect of race knowledge is not to feed our vanity or rouse our boastfulness. Rather, it should arouse a profound sense of responsibility. Today, especially, and this was written in 1933, we feel a revulsion against speaking of race at all. I lay it down as a rule that Whenever the thought of race leads us to boastfulness or contempt, there is something false in it. And here's the kicker. (laughs) The Bible is not a history 
of the human race at large, but one distinct strain of people amongst the family of races. All the other races are considered with reference to it. The Bible deals with one race which flows like a gulf stream through the ocean of humanity. As the actual gulf stream touches two continents and blesses the nation, so this race, in its origin, history, and destiny, was selected and equipped for the service of the nations, meaning the other races. And I just, well, just have that, to... That's absolutely absurd, because serving the other races, how do the children of Israel maintain themselves as a separate and peculiar people? The children of Israel are told to love their brethren, to care for their brethren, and it's fully evident throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospel especially, that we are a, um, a priesthood of God, as he told the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19, and as Peter repeats in chapter 2 of his first epistle, we are a royal priesthood, meaning that we, being a separate and peculiar people, we serve our God by serving one another and loving each other so that we can build the kingdom of God on earth in spite of the other races. Well, this is what Evangelist Wyland um, is pushing as his agenda. And it goes against, or I should say, it goes with the grain of universalism. But it, it does not go with the spirit of Christian identity. We wonder, you know, what is it that uh, is the impediment to the Christian identity movement? Because we did call it that at one time when it, it was moving. Uh, what's preventing it from moving today? Well, it's people going in an entirely different racial direction. And... Uh, I'll tell you, Wyland is an evangelist, all right. I've read that he sent Bibles to Nigeria. He's boasted of that. Clifton had, had answered him in, in that respect. He's boasted of it. And, and that was 10, 12 years ago, and he's still on that track. He, he's a straight rodeo clown. He was a rodeo cowboy. He should have been a rodeo clown. <laughs> he, that the only thing that real Christians... The only thing that they should expect from the other races is where God blessed Noah and his sons, which were the remnant of the Adamic white race, and it can be demonstrated that all of the white nations that exist in history descended from those Genesis 10 nations, and they were all white. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and promised them that the fear of them and the dread of them should be upon every beast of the earth. And if we walk in a godly manner, that's what we should expect of the other races, and that's the end of it. 
They should be in fear and in dread of us. As for this W.J. Cameron, he did a lot of good work with the Jews. He, he's the, the pen behind the Dearborn Independent and Henry Ford's The International Jew. He wrote a Christian identity book in the 30s that I read early in my studies, probably in 97 or 98, called mm. The Covenant People. And I really don't... I was really new to Christian identity and just starting my reading and really don't know what I thought of the book. I would have to reread it, and I'm sure I would be muttering under my breath the whole way. But his handicap, even though I believe he was a good man, his handicap was British Israel. And British Israel concocted this dominion theology, which really at one time belonged to the Catholic Church and the Jesuits, and was their excuse for... um, trying to Christianize the cannibal beasts of the interior of Africa and, and the cannibal beasts of, uh, of the Yucatan Peninsula and, and, and modern-day Mexico and Brazil. And, and British Israel picked that dominion theology up and used it to legitimize the British Empire. And it fit right into the the, um, political scheme of the British Empire and and legitimized the British Empire's rule over the rest of the world if they could assert themselves exclusively as the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Cameron was British Israel. And this whole scheme of dominion theology was concocted first to legitimize the Roman Catholic Church and later to legitimize the British Empire under British Israel. And even Queen Victoria and many British nobles had bought into this scheme in the first in the last several decades of the 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century. But when the British Empire fell apart and disintegrated in the Second World War, British Israel became the laughingstock that it deserves to be. Well, many believe that um, uh, after the Jews were purged from England for over 300 years, uh, Rabbi Manasseh ben Israel uh, put a bug in Oliver Cromwell's ear yes. that um, they were related kindred and uh, thus uh, birthed the British Israel concept that the ten tribes were Anglo-Saxons and that the house of Judah were Jews. But um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there there was some kind of change in Christian identity in the late 80s, early 90s, whether it was change agents or or what, uh, there there was a faction of Christian identity that stuck to their guns, uh, regardless of what the world was starting to call us, you know, racist, hate group, whatnot. Uh, and there were people like the evangelist uh, who didn't want to be perceived as radical. I prefer the word zealot, but uh, 
they became what was known in Christian identity as moderates. And when you think about it, a moderate is nothing but... Lukewarm. Lukewarm. That's exactly and, what they are. And compromising what others would die for. Whose courage of their convictions was such that they didn't care what people called them, come what may. Paul tells us that when we stand for the truth against the enemy, that it is an indication to them of their own destruction, and an indication to us of our promised salvation. That's in Philippians. I talked about it recently. I don't remember. It might be in Ephesians, but I spoke about it recently. And, and for that reason, we should never fear to be called racists. I wrote Ted Wheeland a letter um, 12 years ago from prison telling him that, you, you know, you're just kidding yourself with this racialist term because it doesn't make a difference to the beasts whether you're a racist or a racialist. And it doesn't make a difference to the difference to the Jews whether you're a Christian or a Nazi so you shouldn't be worried about being called a Nazi because the Jews consider all Christians to be Nazis because they you know, really understand Christianity better than Ted Wheeland you know Bill neither yourself nor me coined the term exterminationist that no was Rabbi else. November did another yeah. moderate and uh, you know I'll, I'll wear it as a, a badge of truth. I really don't care what you call it, as long as it's the truth. I'm an Obadiah 16ist. I'm a Jeremiah 3011ist. It, it may sound about um, harsh to some people when they're first introduced to the concept, but. Evidently, some will still cling to this Jewish brainwashing of, of skepticism that this is what it is. Because Christ himself said, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Luke 19.27 Well, if I were a skeptic, <laughs> I would seriously heed the warning of Christ as those who heeded the prophecy that led to 70 A.D. This is the harvest of not only reaping the good fruit, but casting out the good-for-nothing fruit that has rotted and corrupts the rest. It will be a terrible day when these self-righteous hypocrites that denigrated Christian identity with charges of sinful racism, of which there is absolutely no law prohibiting, and wickedness, and a slew of other silly false accusations, and they will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? 
and in your name perform many miracles, and then I, Christ, will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That should raise the hairs on the back of anybody that's taking Christian identity seriously. And not be afraid of those who are compromisers, the lukewormers, and those that may actually be change agents. Instead of fear of the Jews, the day is coming when it will be for fear of the Christians. If you're a Judeo-Christian who loves and blesses the Antichrist Jew, even surreptitiously, and all of a sudden, unexpectedly, Jesus Christ is here, and he tells you to bug off. Yeah, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, well, that's the object of Malachi chapter 1. In, in Malachi chapter 1, we see something that never happened until the 20th century. So it must be talking about modern times. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then he goes right into a dialogue. And he puts these, that attributes these statements to God. And he says, I have loved you. Now this is to Israel. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, speaking of Israel, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord. Saying that Israel is telling telling him this. And that perfectly describes today's Judeo-Christians. Because... The Judeo-Christian, the white Judeo-Christians are, for the most part, descended from the children of Israel, and that's historical, whereas the Jews are, to a great extent, descended from the children of Esau, and that is also historical and biblical. Well, these white Judeo-Christians, who are Israel, they express a greater concern for Esau than they do for themselves and for God. Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? This is depicting exactly what is going on in the world these last hundred years. And God says, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And then God talks about Edom, and he says, meaning Esau, and he says, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished. How many Jews have you heard with that line? We are impoverished. We need money. We need money from America. We need 10 million a day from America. We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Well, Palestine was never rebuilt after the Romans destroyed it. The Muslims built a mosque, and the Crusaders built a couple of fortresses, but they never really rebuilt any 
significant portion of those desolate places that used to be Israel and Judah. They are the desolate places, as Christ told the Pharisees, your house shall be left to you desolate. Well, we are impoverished, saith Esau, but we will return and build the desolate places. That didn't happen until the 20th century when the Jews went back to Palestine, claimed it as Israel, and attempt to rebuild it. And all these true Israelites, these Judeo-Christians, they don't know that those Jews in Palestine are Esau, but what they are doing is the perfect fulfillment of Malachi chapter 1. There is no doubt. And just uh, as a, uh, a footnote to that, it, it goes on to say, they shall build, but I, this is God speaking, I will throw down. Right. So and he will. It's, it's prophetic that Jerusalem will go down for a final time um, as a, a broken vessel that cannot be put back together. That's what Jeremiah said, that, that it's a broken bottle that will never be made whole again. The Jews are trying to make it whole. It's still fractured. It, it's fractured between Arabs and Jews, and they need great military force, and they need the true Israelites to help, because they're impoverished, right? To help them keep it together. It's all a, a, a phony veneer. You know, uh, Matthew twenty-five thirty also says, the useless servant shall be cast out into outer darkness. What's a useless servant? It, it would seem to me to be a, a servant of those alien nations. Yeah, right. Somebody gathering, gathering figs from, th from thistles. Somebody scattering rather than gathering the sheep. And that's not talking about Dante's Inferno, but the reality that They'll just have no place in the kingdom. They might be a Israelite, they may be saved, but because of their unbelief, they won't enter the Lord's place of rest. So it's time for our people to stop playing church, to stop being the agnostic bum, to stop denying He who begot you. And this is what the parable of the wheat and the sower was all about. The seed of the kingdom got spread out onto various types of soil, and some of that soil could produce, some could not. By the way, we don't believe that the soil types are different races, but rather the soil is the Adamic race because Adam was created from it. When you grow a plant, you have to have the right conditions or environment. Its success is all about environment. And I might add that two farmers might be growing the same plant in the same environment, but one is a good crop and the other is bad. Because success is a blessing. And a blessing is from God. But there's, with variables such as weather, insects, and pests, we're entirely dependent upon God for a good crop. Therefore, our spiritual attitude 
contributes to the success. No one in their right mind would try and grow a garden or a field of crops in a bad area and then act surprised that their yield was poor. And this is exactly what has happened with the missionaries going to Africa and other alien countries. You want an ideal plot of ground. And so everyone wants that. But no one wants to put in the work necessary to go and clear that space and make the soil better. If there's thistles and thorns, you put your gloves on, you rip them out, and you discard them. Biblically, we understand thistles and thorns to be unwanted racial aliens, whether we either deport them or, to use the November word, exterminate them if they're unwilling to leave. If you have rocky ground, you hoe them out and pitch them somewhere else. The metaphor is a hardened heart. So we remove the idols of our heart. Now we have good soil conditions. Jesus didn't go into the implications of the parable, but it's a call to action to go and clear that plot of ground. The parable implies that the call to action is for every generation. That was the lesson in Palestine. In Palestine, the children of Israel were supposed to clear that plot of ground and push all of these Canaanites out of the way. And, and some of these um, social justice warriors in Christian identity claim that that would have been it in Palestine. And all the other races are okay, but where are they in the Genesis creation? If they were really nations of men who were good, wouldn't they be mentioned in Scripture? Wouldn't they be part of the Book of Life? But they're not mentioned in Scripture. There are only two trees mentioned in Scripture. One is good and one is bad in Genesis. And in the end, all everything bad gets thrown into the lake of fire. And, and nothing that is bad survives. So we have this good tree that was supposed to fill the earth. Even before the children of Israel entered Palestine, they were already promised that they were going to become a great nation, many nations, a company of nations. They had all these promises. So we see that these promises could not have contained them in Palestine alone, which is actually a pretty small place. So there's no, there's no way that Ephraim and Manasseh alone out of the sons of Israel could really become a great nation and a company of nations in Palestine alone. We have to imagine that God's plan for Israel went beyond Palestine, but they couldn't do it right in Palestine. So they couldn't get beyond Palestine. And, and if we couldn't do it there... And, and do it right and eliminate all those people, well, then we were even thrown out of there. The Israelites right. were even thrown out of there. And the promises to Abraham were fulfilled 
in their captivity, in spite of the children of Israel, God made sure that the promises to Abraham, that the children of Israel become great nations, many nations, companies of nations, were fulfilled. In spite of the children of Israel, not because of them. And these other races are going to be eliminated in spite of the children of Israel, not because of them. Because that's the promise of Jeremiah chapter 30. That I I will make a full end of all the other nations where I have scattered you, but you will not go unpunished for your iniquity. That's Jeremiah 30.11. I will not make a full end of you, but you will not go unpunished. Right. Well, you know, Bill, there was an undercurrent in Christian identity I guess started maybe 20 years ago, and you'd hear it quite often that um, uh, we would be ruling over the other races. But we're not going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, ruling over non-Adamic peoples, teaching them God's law, as some people think. Because that contradicts uh, Peter making the appropriate racial slur when he said, but these as natural brute beast made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Second right. Peter 2.12 And he's talking about the spots in our feasts of charity and those spots in our feasts of charity are those heathen feasting off of God's holy mountain in Obadiah. God only gave the law to Israel and never dealt with heathens because it was beyond their comprehension. And we read that in Psalms 147, 19 and 20. And uh, when we read about um, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a lot of people have this fantasy of, of some kind of uh, church wedding, you know, but it, it's anything but a conventional wedding. It's actually a war. Right, and it's described a in Revelation 19. Of extermination of the racial alien. Right, Revelation chapter 19 the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. So. Let's kind of set the stage here for the character of God. Um, in Deuteronomy 32:41, he says, "If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies. I will reward them that hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh." with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, end quote. Even though most white people don't realize it, these are words of comfort to a backsliding nation such as ours for a God of love. No, it's a God of terror to his enemies and to those who hate him. The, the real terrorist will die by terror. It's, it's the same 
thought as those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So to whom is God's wrath directed? Quote, For my sword will be seen in the heavens. Look, it descends in judgment on Edom, on the people I have doomed to destruction. Isaiah 34, 5. Edom is modern Jewry. What is it that makes God so angry that he would want to annihilate an entire people group? (laughs) Well, well, once it's understood that modern Jewry is the synagogue of Satan, that modern Jewry collectively is the Satan of the first century in, in, in Judea, that they are Satan, the adversary. And, and then we see in Revelation chapter 20 that this Satan, and it's the same stories told in Ezekiel chapters 37, 38, 39, in a different way, but this Satan is going to gather all the nations against the camp of the saints. That's what's going on today. That's not, this immigration of aliens into white lands, before the, um, before Satan was led out of the pit, before the emancipation of the Jews in the, um, in, in the days of Napoleon, it would have been absolutely unheard of, but it did happen in Portugal in, 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 um, limited numbers. It would have been absolutely unheard of, though, to allow aliens from other races and other places into white nations to live as citizens and be given benefits. That's unheard of in all throughout history. That would have been unheard of. The Greeks would be astonished at what the original Greeks would be astonished at what is going on in Europe today. They would be like, what happened to these people? Are they out of their minds? Right. Are they crazy? The original Greeks would have hated today's Europeans. They, the Spartans would slaughter them all. Well, it kind of is a form of mass insanity. And it's only been in our dialogue these last hundred years, not even a hundred years. Well, you know, some people, Bill, just can't get a handle on, um, on this destruction business. And it's because, I guess, they can't picture the destruction of all this insanity that's going on against our race. Well, there are it's ten really, versions. It's, it's simply the sabotage of God's plan uh, to destroy his people whom he created for his purposes. And, that, and like you said, isn't anything we have to do with. This is the anger of God being kindled against those that are messing with his plan. Here's the crux of the issue that, that we... Um race tonight. There are ten virgins. Five of them are really dumb, and they're off in the markets when their master returns. And the other five are good, and they were prepared. Where is Christian identity going to be? Are, is the, the 
bulk of Christian identity going to be with Rabbi November and Evangelist Wyland off in the markets with the five virgins that don't know what the hell they're doing? Or are they going to be prepared for what is coming? With the well, five I think virgins we have to be as radical as Christ. And if they don't like that, then they can go to another Christ. And there's plenty of other Christ out there that aren't Christian identity. There's another gospel, there's another Christ, and that's not us being about our Father's business. Right. The world is filled with idols. There's no doubt. Ted Wheeler you know, a race, has... A, a race of people cannot propagate or have a destiny if they're integrated with other people groups <laughs> that have a different future. It's like all these, it's like a, a bumper car place. If you've ever been to one of those places, it's just all these cars going in different directions trying to bump the other one uh, as some kind of sport. Well, we can only share our destiny if we share our origin. And I'd like to see where the other races are created in the scripture. Because there's only two trees. The tree of life that was good. The Adamic creation. The Adamic man that was good. And then there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's bad. And in the end, you only have two groups in, in so many parables. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the good figs and the bad figs, the good fish and the bad fish, and the goats, the bad fish, the bad figs, and the tares always end up in the fire. And the only thing that's left are the children of Israel at the end. The tree of life with twelve manner of fruits. You know, the... Um The moderates are so harmful to the Christian identity move, movement moving because it's a lot like I heard some liberals say once, well, integration isn't working because we need more. It's kind of like throwing gasoline on the flames to put out the fire. And as a way of divine judgment, when racial aliens enter an Israelite land and the Israelites don't kick them out, God will send them more. He will give our people the desires of their heart. And if we have a little bit of leaven in our movement that gives credence to these other people groups when there should be none then it's exacerbating it's it's a stumbling block to Christian identity going anywhere you mentioned uh, Jeremiah 31 earlier and in verse 27 it says behold the days come saith the Lord that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them 
to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And, and so there won't we, be we any strange slips. There won't be any strange slips on that pleasant plant. We see the same thing today with the illegal aliens flooding into uh, Europe and our nation, covering the land like a cloud in the last days, as Ezekiel 38, 16 describes it. And just as God punished Assyria and Babylon for taking captive his people, God will likewise do with today's beast who are racial aliens. While we suffer today from these elements in our society, it is exacerbated by the watchmen of Israel who fail to protect the chosen people of God. Psalm 79 tells us who it is that God is at war with when he returns. Quote, O God, the heathen are come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the heathen that they have not known you, and on the kingdoms that have not called on your name. The prophecy indeed does deliver the wrath to end the serpentine reign of terror. Isaiah 41, 11 and 12 warrants the complete destruction of Israel's enemies. Quote, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be reduced to nothing. The overcast clouds of dark-skinned people cover America under the guise of multicultural diversity as if two words can change the complexion and identity of a nation. Ezekiel 39 is a prophecy whereby God says, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog. And Gog can be seen as the only culprit who has conspired in criminal politics for hundreds of years in white Christian nations. And that's the Jew. Gog is the same beast of Revelation 18, which is the international Jew, the synagogue of Satan, as you mentioned just a few moments ago. That almighty city, Babylon. This is the beast that gets white people to deny their savior and to worship the beast, the Jew. And just this morning, I tuned in the news and they were doing the exact thing with uh, a dead judge by the name of Scalia, who embraced Talmudism more than his professed belief in Christ. The International Standard Version has an interesting translation of Ezekiel 39.11. It goes like this. When all of this happens, 
I'm going to set aside a grave site for Gog in Israel's Traveler's Valley, near the approach to the Dead Sea. He will block off everyone who tries to bypass it. There they will bury Gog and rename the area Valley of Gog's Gang, end quote. <laughs> that, that's the whole gang of, of, of people groups, of nations that Satan gathers against the children of Israel. And, and my favorite psalm is Psalm 118, where David wrote, All nations encompass me about, but in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. They compass me about, yeah, they compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, because they're thorns. For in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Three times it says it. It doesn't just say it once. That's like Peter. Peter was thick-headed. I'm not speaking bad about Peter, I'm just speaking the truth. He was thick-headed. Every time he had an issue with Christ, Christ had to tell him three times to do something before Peter got it. And that happened, I think that happened three times. Three times he denied Christ. Three times he, he was given the, the, the vision of the sheep. And three times in the Gospel of John he was told, feed my sheep if you love me. So that happened three times. So there's our three witnesses. Well, in the psalm, David repeats it three times. All nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them, because most of the children of Israel are just as stubborn as David. As Peter, I'm sorry. That's interesting. You know, our adversaries are really kind of gangsters and banksters. They uh, they do have that herd mentality. The, the kind of herd of wolvenous, ravenous wolves that uh, prey upon sheep. They're, they're the real terrorists and adversaries to the God of Israel. Romans 13 says, rulers are not to be a terror unto good, but to evil. But today, unfortunately, they call good evil and evil good. I have one last thought here, Bill. I, I pray that identity Christians begin to identify what it is that prevents us from moving. The movement, not of ourselves, but of God with unity and a vision. A vision is a plan with a purpose. Christ said it. Repent and seek ye first the kingdom of God. I pray that our presentation tonight has stimulated some circumspect inventory to cleanse our souls of the world, to make a right our relationship with Christ, and to help our kindred see the light. And I've enjoyed our dialogue tonight. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And, and um, I pray that this edifies a few people and, and perhaps even pushes a few fence-sitters 
over to the side of Yahweh's righteousness. Amen. Thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. Praise Yahweh. And good night.